there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Are you ready for a paradigm shift? That's a new way of thinking about or looking at something. In this case, the legal field, because my next guest is someone who wants you to do just that. But before I introduce you to Christina Martini, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that we send out on Mondays to give you an overview of the episodes and professionals we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Christina Martini, a practicing intellectual property attorney and partner at McDermott, Will & Emery. Christina focuses on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, unfair competition, and entertainment law. In addition to her full-time practice and various leadership roles at the firm, Christina is also the host of the Paradigm Shift podcast, a podcast about the intersection of business and law. She is also the co-host of WGN's podcast, Legal Faceoff. Christina, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am fully caffeinated and ready to go. How are you, Andrea? I am doing great. It is a beautiful day today in the Washington, D.C. area. How is it up in Chicago? It's actually a really nice day. We just got off of a couple of days of about 80 degree weather. It's a little bit chillier today, but the sun's out and everybody's very excited that it looks like spring is finally here. Woohoo. All right. And that does not (laughs) sound like Chicago to be having 80 degree weather in April. No, but we're known for having unpredictability in our weather, both snow as well as beach days, especially at this time of year. I will take the warmth anytime. Me too. Okay. So Christina, you have been practicing intellectual property law for the last 25 years. For those Java junkies who may not be familiar with IP law, can you please explain what that is? What are the range of issues that are encompassed by intellectual property law? Sure. So intellectual property law is a body of law that really covers, I would say, things that are more cerebral rather than real property, which many people think of as tangible property like real estate. And IP covers several different facets, including patents and trademarks and copyright. When you talk about designs and about devices, there are things that you can touch. They're inventions. And Copyright covers artistic works, which are fixed in a tangible medium of expression, which sounds very legalistic, but it's music, it's books, it's artwork, those sorts of things, and and a whole host of others as well. Trademarks is really about branding, 
And it's all the different facets of branding, including a brand name, as well as slogans, logos, trade dress, which is really the way something looks. For example, the way a restaurant looks, depending on how unique it is, could actually be a protectable form of trademark or trade dress. And my practice really focuses primarily on copyright and trademark. And it's both U.S. as well as global work. And it's everything from helping clients to launch brands across the world to protecting those brands and licensing those brands and potentially either buying new brands or selling them. And it's a lot of fun. I get to work with a bunch of different kinds of companies and every day is something new and different. I would imagine that over the last 25 years, IP law has had to change and morph and adapt quite a bit. What would you say, Christina, have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen since you first got into this industry? Well, this industry, as you duly noted, has changed so much. And we could probably spend hours talking about how it's evolved over time. But I would say that the advent of the internet has really transformed what intellectual property looks like because the nature of business has changed. The nature of how people present their businesses has changed. So people now, many of them have an online platform for their businesses and the way that they advertise their businesses, the online medium makes things much more challenging for certain companies. The advent of websites has introduced a whole host of ways that people can protect their brands, but it's also introduced a whole host of ways that people's brands and their intellectual property can be infringed. And I would say social media is another facet to that. And over the past several years, I've really spent a lot more time working with clients to not only protect certain elements of their social media presence, but also to protect themselves against other people or other companies that try to take advantage of their intellectual property in an inappropriate way over social media. And I would imagine, as you say, considering the advent of the internet and the fact that so many businesses, if they don't have a website, they are certainly the exception to the rule that they are vulnerable to copyright trademark infringement in countries where they may not have rule of law. That's absolutely right. And that's why it's really important that as businesses get off the ground and start creating a roadmap for what their short-term and longer-term goals and business strategy looks like, that they consider not just protecting themselves in the U.S. or whatever their country of origin may be, but that they try to be as proactive as their budget allows them to, to protect themselves even in countries where they may not yet be, especially if they are countries that are important commercial centers or that are known for being particularly difficult when it comes to piracy and other forms of intellectual property infringement to try to just protect yourself and to protect themselves as much as possible, even if you are not on the ground in those jurisdictions today. We will be talking a bit more about one of your podcasts, The Paradigm Shift, in just a few minutes. And as I said in the introduction, it is a podcast about the intersection of business and law. As you know, Christina, many of our young listeners are still in college themselves. What are the courses that you think they should be taking? I'm not talking about a major. I'm just saying classes. If they think they might be interested in IP law, 
what are the kinds of classes or extracurriculars or internships that they could and should be taking advantage of right now to prepare them for the nature of the various business changes that we're experiencing right now? I think it's a good idea to consider from a class perspective, taking things like philosophy, logic, classes in criminal justice, as well as in political science, any classes that your school may offer that help give you insight into what the legal system is like and what being a practicing attorney looks like. Sometimes there are seminars or other types of I would say classes or seminars and things like that, get togethers, forums, conferences where you are able to meet with professors, meet with meet with practitioners who can give you a really good idea of what practicing law is. In terms of internships, I would definitely talk to your career services department to the extent that you've got one at your school, particularly in those majors where they tend to see a lot of people go on to law school like criminal justice or political science because they could give some recommendations as to companies or law firms or public interest groups that may be offering job opportunities that will give you a familiarity with the law that you may otherwise not get. Now, one word of caution, do not be discouraged if you find that some of these are unpaid internships. Sometimes they are, but they can be invaluable in ways that even a paying job may not be, particularly if they give you a good insight into what the day-to-day life of a lawyer looks like in certain environments. Great. Thanks so much. Could you give us an example, Christina, of a case or a client that you've worked with in recent years, maybe, to help them around an IP issue? Not necessarily a problem, maybe it's being proactive, but to kind of give us a window into your world. So with many of my clients, I tend to help them do everything from taking a product that is currently in development. For example, I do a lot of pharmaceutical work and I help companies that are in the process of developing a drug, for example, and I've got a few that are like this and where that drug may be in clinical trials right now. I help them in terms of vetting potential brands that will be used in connection with that product, both in the U.S. and outside of the United States. And when I say vetting, what I mean is really taking a look at the names and trying to evaluate the risk that they pose. And so that is a really fun thing that I've done a lot of over the years. And one of the reasons why it's so fun is because I have a front row seat to what ends up being a particular drug that gets launched. And I see infomercials for many of these drugs that are on the market today. And I remember when I was working very closely with a client several years before launch to try to help them figure out what the best name is for them. And then I help them file for protection across many dozens of countries. Sometimes it's at least 100 and 150 countries, depending on how far geographically the client will market the product. But then I also sometimes what clients find is there are online pharmacies or other unauthorized channels through which their products get sold. If they're in a service business, sometimes people, particularly outside of the United States, set up an illegitimate website or set up shops, so to speak, and put an unauthorized sign up and pretend that they are my client when they're not. And then having to work 
with my client closely, as well as local counsel in many of these foreign jurisdictions to shut down these businesses because there's concerns about them not just taking revenue away from the revenue stream, but also their concerns about their reputation, particularly if these businesses are not legitimate businesses. So that's just a very brief snapshot into what my day-to-day looks like in the different types of work I do. Great. I was actually just going to ask you maybe to bring us into an average day, understanding that there probably is no typical day, but into a day in the life of Christina Martini, what does it look like? Are you spending a lot of time on the phone? Are you going to meet clients? Are they coming to meet you? Are you researching? I recognize that's probably something that associates do, but kind of paint a picture for us, Christina, about how long your day is and what you're doing in between the time that you get up and the time that you unplug for the night. So I am an early bird. So I usually am up by five and I'm on email. That's one of the first things I do very early in the morning before I get to work. And the reason is because I'm very fortunate to have a global practice. So even though I try to get to bed by about 1030 or 11 every night, and I'm looking at email until a few minutes before I go to sleep, I can often wake up to at least 20 or 30 plus emails early in the morning. Many of those tend to be from various foreign offices of clients, or they may be from foreign attorneys that I'm working with on various projects for clients around the world. So I start my day going through emails. I get ready for work. I'm usually at work by 7 a.m. And I try to continue to go through emails and get things ready for others on my team that help me on various projects to try to set them up for the day. And day to day, I can be on the phone sometimes for a number of hours a day. I'm usually making my way through at least several hundred emails a day. Oftentimes, those are emails working with other counsel or other colleagues at the firm or they're with clients. I will sometimes travel to see clients or they will come and see me in my office. And I also am very fortunate to have a couple of leadership opportunities at the firm and leadership positions that I'm a part of. And so a good chunk of my week, I would say a considerable amount of time is spent working on the responsibilities and the roles that I'm participating in, whether it's as part of a team or whether it's leading a team, that sort of thing. Great. You write a regular column, or at least you did, for the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. And I was reading through some of them. And I thought it would be interesting for our young listeners to get some of the insights that you shared in these articles, one of which was entitled 10 Tips for Summer Associates, How to Make the Most of Your Time. Could you just share maybe a few of those tips, Christina? Yes. So summer associates, I really loved being one when I was in school. And I think it's just such a wonderful opportunity. And it can be a really fun opportunity too. a lot of firms when you get the summer associate position, it's for 10 weeks, sometimes it's a couple of weeks more or a few weeks fewer. But a lot of places I've seen her for 10 weeks. And it's really a great opportunity to get to know the firm that you are a summer associate at and for them to get to know you. And so I would say that there are a number of things to keep in mind during the course of the summer, one of which is to really make an effort to get to know the lawyers at the firm and to get to know your fellow summer associates, because this is how they're going to get to know you. And they're also going to keep you in mind for projects. And ultimately, 
figuring out what the best fit is for you in terms of the team to join at the firm. This is a critical part of the process. I would also see the summer as an opportunity to try out different types of projects across different practice areas. Because once you complete your summer, you may very well get placed into a practice group pretty quickly after that. And once that happens and you go down the road of specializing, it may have been your last opportunity to really explore different areas. So I would definitely recommend that as well. And also really keep in mind that the summer is a job interview. Yes, you interviewed to get the job, but realize that it's 10-week interview process. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And you need to be sure to exercise the utmost professionalism, not just during the course of the 10 weeks, but obviously beyond that. But it is never a sure thing until you get that final offer. And so just be mindful of the importance of being as professional as you can be. So in other words, the selfies of you drinking from a big keg of beer underneath it, which was actually one of the photographs that a friend of mine has of me, Christina, dating back to our time in college. Don't post that on Instagram, right? Yes. And that's a great point is be careful about social media as well. It's great when you're with friends and you're having a good time, but you have to be really careful about how you distribute those types of pictures and content. Back when I was in law school in the early 90s, social media didn't exist. Obviously, Polaroids did and other cameras. And so there are concerns even dating back to years ago of pictures finding themselves in unwanted hands. But social media makes things so much easier to share than ever before. And employers do search the internet and they do look to see what people's Facebook and other social media posts are, especially if those different accounts are made public, the contents of it are made public. So just be careful out there. Recently, Christina, I was at a women in business networking event and I was talking with a woman who is older than I am, who's an attorney. And she was remarking on how unusual it was when she first got into the profession to be a woman in the legal field. Another piece that you wrote for the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin was around women lawyers presenting your best self and leveraging social networks. What advice do you have for young women who want to get into the law? I think that young women should realize that while there are certain professions and the law is one of them where it seems like particularly at the more senior level, more male dominated. It's important to remember that the world is your oyster. And back when I graduated law school 25 years ago and today, it's really at least 50-50. When I look at the demographics of the new classes coming out of law school, many of them are 50% women. And so I would just keep that in mind and also approach your colleagues and your work and your clients from as gender neutral a place as you can be. I'm not saying by any means to lose your identity, but really embrace what makes you special, whether it's gender related or just you as an individual, and make sure that you put your best self 
forward. And what part of that means is not just doing great work and developing relationships with people at your place of employment early on, but also remember the importance of the people that you've gotten to know throughout your academic experience and through your social networks and understand that each of them are potential clients in the future and keep in touch with them and try to help them as much as you can because your ability to help people in a selfless way, my experience has been that it will end up coming back to you in spades. And there are great ways to keep in touch with people that don't require necessarily a ton of time, but these are your future clients, or at least they're more likely to be your future clients than total strangers are. So staying in touch with people, social media is a great way to do it. In person is even better, but because of time constraints and so forth, sometimes staying in touch by social media may be the only way to do it most of the time, but be strategic about it and have fun. Absolutely. And I love that you brought that up because our young listeners need to be thinking about their time in law school, their time in college as one of the many places over the course of their life where they will be building an incredibly important network of relationships and whether that peer becomes your client or whether they become your partner one day is absolutely on the table. So, Christina, your podcast, one of them, is called Paradigm Shift. Why did you give it that name? And can you give us an example of the kind of paradigm shift that you're seeking to showcase? I love that question. So, Paradigm Shift started as a column, the column that you were referring to in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin about 10 years ago. And it's really about the intersection of business and law. And the phrase really came to my mind because I started writing the column on the heels of the beginning of the 2008 recession. And everything had changed at that point, not just in the legal profession, but in business as we knew it and the world as we knew it. And what became pretty clear to me is that the rules had changed and taking law is just the specific example. The rules had really changed as it related to lawyers practicing their relationships with their clients and how they go to market and really create a practice and a profile that is meaningful, particularly on the heels of a recession. I tried to explore my column and it continues in my podcast is really looking at the business edges around the law. As I mentioned earlier, lawyers don't just solve legal problems. There's always a business context for them. So the practice of law isn't just practicing law. There's a business context for the practice. And so whether it's business development or how to present your best self or professionalism and executive presence or the issues of diversity and inclusion and wellness, these are all the different topics that I explore. And they're really about trying to help people to look at themselves and figure out how best to leverage their talents and their strengths and to differentiate themselves from others that are in the profession. Fantastic. Well, I hope Java junkies, especially those who are interested in the law and maybe in this area of specialty, the IP specialty that you have, will tune in to Paradigm Shift. I want to flashback 
for a couple of minutes here, Christina, to when you were in college, you went to the University of Illinois and you got your bachelor's of science in industrial engineering. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? So I knew when I graduated college that I wanted to go into law school, but going into college, it could not have been further from my mind. And there were a couple of things that happened while I was in college that made me realize that I definitely needed to, at the very least, explore law school to see if it was something that I would enjoy and then ultimately enjoy being a lawyer. The first was a class that I took called safety engineering. And there was a woman who was an alum of the University of Illinois. She was also an industrial engineer. She did accident reconstruction. And she shared with the class what her day-to-day life was like, very much like how you and I have been talking about what my practice looks like these days. And I was fascinated by what she was telling us as a class. She did. She would go in where there was an industrial accident or some other type of disaster, and she would reconstruct along with a team what went wrong to try to figure out how to improve processes and procedures going forward, but also to figure out where the legal liability was. And she mentioned that some days she spent more time looking at law and legal-related issues and researching them than she did applying her straight up engineering. And so I found that completely fascinating. And that was what really first planted the seed for me in terms of law school. And then I also had a boyfriend at the time who was an engineer who also was thinking about law school. And he and I had a little contest to see who would do better on the LSAT. And (laughs) let's just say there was a little dare that was involved. And ultimately, I ended up being the one of the two of us who went to law school and he went on to do other things. But those two things together are how I ended up in law school. Oh my gosh, what an interesting story. As you were describing to me what that woman was doing in her day to day, the woman who was doing industrial law, it made me think of CSI, like a kind of a CSI experience that she would be investigating what the cause of an accident was. Absolutely. She was totally doing CSI type of things before CSI even existed. And I just found it completely fascinating. And I had studied a lot of different disasters during the course of that class. And I actually started my master's in safety engineering and took additional classes in that area too. But there's a different way that you look at the world when you look at the world and things like a plane flying and a nuclear plant operating. When you look at the process and everything around you as a process, it's a really fascinating way to to look at the world and to break it up into smaller pieces. You are now the second BS in engineering graduate that I've interviewed who has not gone into engineering. The other young person I interviewed is Chris Lukey, who works for Rockwell Automation doing marketing and advertising, but he is using his engineering degree because he really has to understand what his clients' needs are in order to assess what the best fit is. It's just incredible. I love that you have such a different undergraduate degree and how applicable at the same time it is to what you're doing now. 
Yes, I would say that industrial engineering and other and other disciplines too really prepared me for what came next. And I would have a number of discussions with some of my classmates about whether having an engineering background was a good or a bad thing. I can tell you that doing all the reading that comes with law school was definitely something I needed to adjust to because it was something I was not used to. But in terms of reasoning and logic and developing a framework for an argument, that was really not all that different than writing a lab experiment in college where you set out and, and you articulate what you're trying to prove, the steps that your experiment is taking in order to either establish that something's true or to prove that it's false. It's really not all that different than laying out a legal argument. Fascinating. So, Christina, I have two final questions that I try to ask all of my guests. And the first is, if you could share a time in your professional life that you struggle We have all had ups and downs in our professional life as well as in our personal lives. But I think it's so important for those of you who have clearly made it to the top of your profession to show our young listeners that you had to get through rough times as well. And you had to exhibit grit and determination to make it through those long days and nights when you were dealing with whatever that challenge may have been. So, Christina, do you have a story that you could share with us? Absolutely. So, I look back on when I first started practicing, which was in 1994, and it was post-recession. And I've actually lived through now three recessions during the course of my legal career. And the first that I lived through was actually as I was entering into the profession. And how that manifested itself was I was one of about nine people that had just graduated law school and were starting at my old firm. And I started in an area that was a transactional area, it was a real estate practice. And there were five of us that actually started at the same time. We were brand new lawyers in the same practice area. And there was maybe enough work for two of us. And so very early on, I realized that even if you get hired, if you are in the middle of a huge recession and there isn't enough work in a particular area at a firm, you need to get creative and you need to get strategic because you need to make sure that you stay busy enough, not only to be profitable to the firm, but to also make sure that you get enough experience and you don't fall behind. So it was very tough on those of us who were all in this boat together. And ultimately, what I ended up doing was picking up work from other parts of the real estate practice. But I also ended up picking up projects from the intellectual property practice group and realized about a year into splitting between two groups that the IP practice was really one that I felt was a unique practice and one that I was well situated for. I really liked the people in the group. I liked the clients. And I knew that there still wasn't enough work in the group for all five of us. And so I ended up transitioning into the IP practice full time. And so I would say that my big takeaway is that I think everything happens for a reason. And even if you find yourself in a particularly challenging or tough circumstance, know that you will get through it. Just be very nimble and be very, I guess, have that fire in the belly and be willing to just push forward and know that you will end up in the place you're supposed to end up in. Oh my gosh, there's so much in that story, Christina. I would say the biggest takeaway for me personally is that even when you are not 
in an explicit entrepreneurial job, you still need to be entrepreneurial. And in fact, as it reflects on my own career track, this is my fourth career. I was a journalist, then I went into public relations, then I went into public affairs in the NGO world. I was never in business explicitly until now, but I had to be entrepreneurial in every job prior to this. And I think that is such a great example of how even a young associate needed to be thinking about how they could be scrappy to CYA and make yourself valuable to the firm. Absolutely. And it's one of those things where I think that oftentimes you assume that once you get the job, that everything will immediately fall into place and it will be smooth sailing. And yes, you're absolutely right. And that's a great way to frame it, that I needed to be entrepreneurial. And even back 25 years ago, that was something that all of us needed to exhibit who were in firms where there were transactional areas that took a hit during the recession. And those that were entrepreneurial and were willing to jump in no matter what practice area, I think ended up getting ahead and doing better than people who were rigid and want to just cling to the vision of what they had coming into the job before it became pretty clear that they would need to be flexible. Terrific. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college, back to the University of Illinois and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Christina, What advice would you give yourself? I would give myself the advice that it's really important to develop relationships as early as possible with people and to stay in touch with them. I look back at all the friends that I had made in college and how great they were. And what I noticed is that when I look back now to my college years, which started about 30 years ago, there are very few of them that I am still in touch with. And I really wish that I had made a concerted effort, not just when I was in school, but right after I graduated to stay in touch with them. And the same thing with my law school friends. I'm in touch with a number of them, but I would say that I wish that I had been a bit more intentional about keeping in touch with those people. And also, I would have found a way. I'd started my master's in safety engineering. I was about halfway through that degree. I would have tried to find a way, even with law school in the mix, of finishing up that degree because I think that being able to say you have a master's in an engineering discipline definitely gives you street cred, so to speak, beyond just having a BS. And so I would have done that differently as well. It's never too late. Oh, I think I'd have to go back to making sure I remember things like (laughs) geometry. (laughs) Okay. All right. Listen, kudos to you. That is definitely not where my strengths lie. So I have huge respect for you as an industrial engineering major and the fact that you were taking classes towards your master's in that field as well, as well as having a law degree. So Christina, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I hope our Java junkies will tune in to Paradigm Shift, one of your two podcasts, the other one on WGN. You are co-hosting Legal Face-Off there. And I just want to say thank you for enlightening me about this really fascinating field. It just sounds like an intellectual exercise that 
is broadening your horizons every day that you're in it. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you, Andrea. It's been so much fun. And I welcome any of your listeners who might want to learn more about what I do and the day-to-day or just need some advice on how to move forward in this area. I would be happy to talk with them anytime. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.